0: This morning I want to uh, say thank you to you uh, for your hard work last week to invite so many people to Easter and to make it such a beautiful celebration. I talked with Jim Jarowski uh, this morning, who headed up our our uh, pancake and sausage breakfast, our free pancake and sausage breakfast. Over 300 people uh, were served. Jim told me something. I was thanking him and was here a little. Bit. The guy started super early uh, on Easter Sunday morning, and, and I came a little bit later and went down there, and they're just buzzing away, just having a great time, a great fellowship, and there's a great spirit. He told me something surprising. He said, I didn't recruit any of them. He didn't have to call anybody. Am I right about this? Yeah. They all called him. So if you got left out, that's because you didn't call him. But anyway, so uh, he, he, they all called him and said, I want to be a part of that. And then there were so many others of you that did so many things to make Easter such a beautiful day and such an, a, a day that in, in which the Lord could be honored and the gospel could be preached and so many people came and I was so proud of you if you if you don't mind me saying it that way when I when church was over and I went out and I sat on the steps and everybody was gone and the sun was shining I just thought wow what a great church what, what good people that you worked so hard to invite people and I know how hard it is sometimes you invite people and they don't come right that's just the way it works but the Lord saw your efforts. And it's the Lord who has to empower these things for, you know, to, to change people's lives. I just was so proud of you and so grateful. Proud is probably not the exact right word, but I was, uh, I was so pleased just to see your, uh, your, just your missional efforts. are so cool. How many of you love that song, Great is Thy Faithfulness? A little phrase in there that says, All I have needed, your hand has provided. How many of you would agree that's true? Raise your hand. All I have needed. Your hand has provided. Me too. When I was a little boy, my mom was teaching me Bible verses. She knew I was going to be trouble. So she said, well, let's just teach this boy some Bible verses. She, she, um, one of the first Psalms that she taught me, I can remember exactly the little bedroom where we were in the front room of the house with me and my sister. And I remember my mom teaching me Psalm 23. In a beautiful language of the King James Bible, it's a little hard for a little boy to understand, though. Uh, remember the part in there that says, the Lord is my shepherd. What's next? I shall not want. When you're a little boy, you think, well, why wouldn't I want him? Everything I heard about him is good. Why don't I want him? I didn't understand that. I tried to explain it to my mom. I'm not sure she understood my misunderstanding, but what it means, and it's, it's, it's paraphrased in the Living Bible like this. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. Isn't that good? I asked Hope to sing that song. I heard that song, and I shall not want, speaks to a deep place in my soul. Because I have Jesus, I have everything I need. And he's the only one who knows everything I need. So a pastor, a friend of mine, his name is Michael Powers. His pastor was going through a difficult time. He's an associate pastor at a church in Janesville, Wisconsin faith community church. His pastor was going through a really difficult time and trying to leave the church and the church, the area was in a difficult time and they were trying to build a building to accommodate the people and it was going to require a lot of fundraising and he felt inadequate. And he said to his wife, I I think I'd like to just get away alone and be alone with the Lord. And he said to his wife, do you mind if I just go to Florida for a few days? And his wife graciously said, well, go ahead. He's in Wisconsin. He's going to drive to Florida. And his wife says, just go and go take that drive and spend some time with the Lord, and so he got in his car, and he drove towards Florida. When he got to Kentucky, he stopped at a bank, and he was using his card at an ATM machine at the bank, and he drove away and forgot to take his card out. Before he realized it, he, you know, he, he drove back, and the, and the machine had eaten his card. So he stayed overnight, and he went to the bank the next morning, and they said, well, it was shredded, and you can't get it back. So then he had a decision to make. Do I go to florida and kind of live on the little cash that i have and stay at the motel six and eat at mcdonald's and taco bell or do i just abort the trip and go home what he decided to do was uh he decided to go on and just just have a spartan trip and so he went on to florida he on the way he was thinking of a place to eat and he knew there was a place where he could, if he ordered soup he could get unlimited amounts of bread with the soup and so he thought well that's where i'll go So without a a credit card, he he went to the place where they serve soup with unlimited amounts of bread in Orlando. And he said it was a Friday night in Orlando, about 730 at night. And the place was just the whole city was just crawling with people. And there was no place to park except places where you had to slide a card to get into the parking lot. But he didn't have a card to slide. So he decided that near the restaurant where he wanted to go was a pizza hut. And he would just cheat and park in the, the pizza hut and eat at this other restaurant. So he parked at the pizza hut. And he ate at the other restaurant. And you can guess what happened, right? When he came home back, his car was gone. It had been towed and impounded. But it wasn't a big deal because he could get it back for only $150 in cash. He said to the, to the owner that you just have to go there. And he called him on the phone, and they, he said, could I write you a check? And they said, you cannot write a check. You have to have $150 cash. He said, could I give you $100 and write you a check for $50? They said, no, you have to have $150 cash. Oh, and by the way, if it's here tomorrow, it'll be 150 more. It's $150 a day until you come and get your car. So the pastor walks out of the pizza hut, and he's very discouraged. He says to them on the phone, can I come and at least get some things out of my trunk? I'm going to need some things. And they said, all right, you can do that. So he walks out, and he sits down outdoors outside this pizza hut. And he doesn't know what he's going to do. And so he tells the Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do. Would you please help me? He realizes uh, after his little short prayer that he's going to have to have a taxi ride to the impound lot. And he says in, in Orlando, Florida, there are literally 11,000 taxi companies. There are thousands and thousands of people use the taxis down there a lot thousands and thousands of taxis and most of them on a Friday night at 7:30 are full of people it's hard to hail a taxi and get an empty taxi and go where you want to go but he prays this little prayer and he steps out of the curb and he raises his hand and the first taxi stops and picks him up and it's empty there's a, a distinguished fellow there a Jamaican fellow is the taxi driver and he's listening to his radio and it's Christian music on the radio and the pastor starts to tell him his sad story and he notices that the taxi driver doesn't really seem all that interested in him. But then he says, you know, he's a pastor and he's from Wisconsin. And the guy kind of stops and looks over his shoulder and he says, is your name Jeff? Let me double check the pastor's name. Yeah, Jeff Williams. He says, is your name Jeff? He goes, yeah. He goes, you're from a faith community church in Janesville? He goes, yes. He goes, I can't wait to tell my wife that I gave you a ride tonight. Now, this guy's not a pastor of a huge church, not famous at all. He says, well, do you know me? Have you ever been to Wisconsin? And he says, no, but my wife is going to be so excited to know that I gave you a ride tonight. And he says, well, why? Has your wife, has she been to Wisconsin? Does she know me? He goes, well, no, not really. But my wife one day, you know, we're Christians. My wife is a Christian. And she was just surfing the net one day. And she stumbled on your church by accident. And she listened to one of your messages. And it was really good. And she liked it. So she listened again and two or three more times. And then she said to me, we should listen to this guy. And so we listen to you every week. When they got to the impound lot, the, the taxi driver parks the car. He gets out. He takes out his own wallet, takes out $150 cash, pays for the pastor's car. And the pastor says, let me write you a check. And the taxi driver says, there's no way I'm going to let, let you write me a check. I don't want you to steal my blessing. Well, you know me. I, I heard that story. I, you know, I knew I would have to tell you right away. Because this is the God I serve. And this is the God you serve. He knows what you need. Uh, it's not always going to be taxis. It's lots of things we need that's a lot more important than food and clothing and stuff even in this life. You know, this life is spiraling toward the end. You can tell that just by looking around. And the greatest needs that we're going to have are are those needs that are going to surface in the end of our life or the end of the world? And that really is a, is a powerful introduction for us to understand what it says in Revelation chapter 15. Because Revelation chapter 15 is, a, is one of those passages of scripture. It's just before God is going to show the judgments that he is going to send to the earth during the great tribulation. And we know that there are you know, three sets of seven judgments and they're called, the first are called the seal judgments because they pour out on the earth when the the scroll is unsealed one at a time in heaven and then things happen on earth. So every time you have judgments, the way the book of Revelation is written, every time you have judgments that are falling on the earth, you have a scene first in heaven that describes that these judgments are actually coming from God. And it's a very orderly interesting symbol-laden book. The first seven of these judgments that fall on the earth happen when the seals are unsealed in heaven. And then you have the next set of seven judgments that happen when trumpets are blown by angels in heaven. And before that, you have a scene in heaven, and in the scene in heaven, you have the throne of God, and you have the Lamb, and you have people that populate heaven, and they're always singing praise to God. And then on earth, you have this horrifying chaos, and then whenever it's in heaven, you have this scene of unimaginable beauty, unimaginable glory, unimaginable goodness and brightness and light. And that's really the best way to understand the book of the Revelation is... In heaven, God is on his throne, and everyone is worshiping the lamb, and everything is right and true and powerful and beautiful and orderly. But on earth, where men have rebelled against God, there's always chaos. And you have it right there. When you get to Revelation 19, it's going to take us a few weeks to get there, but when you get to Revelation 19, things change because heaven comes to earth. Jesus brings all of heaven to earth and takes over the earth, and he brings his kingdom in the fullest sense to the earth. You know, when we sing this song, Build Your Kingdom Here, we realize that there's only one sense in which that we're in the kingdom of God now. Wherever Jesus reigns is, in a sense, spiritually his kingdom, and we're building that kingdom. But when he comes in terrible glory and power, and at the end of the tribulation, he will establish a 1,000-year reign of Christ, which is a literal Jewish kingdom, and he will sit on the throne on the earth. And then after that, there will be the eternal state, which is the eternal kingdom of God. So wherever God is reigning, you call it his kingdom. Old Testament, church, New Testament, future, there's a sense in which it's his kingdom. There's, only, there's this literal 1,000-year reign, and there's this ultimate reign of Christ, which is his kingdom. And that's why when we sing about the kingdom of God, we're just talking about his rule, his reign, his rightness. And you can welcome the kingdom of God in your life, in your family, in your marriage God, the benevolent king, who's the ultimate ruler of everything, can rule your life. Wouldn't that be good? That's what it's supposed to be like. And if you look around, you notice the people that are doing that, to the degree that they're doing that, and allowing the king to rule their life, they have the same troubles that you and I have, right? We all go through the same troubles, but it's a completely different thing because like, we're living with a completely different view of the world, So now when you get here, you're going to have seven more judgments, and they're the end judgments that are going to come upon the earth in a a quick staccato of judgment, one right after another, quickly. They're, They're talked about there in chapter 16, but again you have a scene of the throne room of heaven first. And in the eight verses of Revelation 15, we get to look into that throne room one more time before these horrifying judgments are poured out on the earth, and you get to see the throne of God, and guess what? There are singers. It's a beautiful thing. So let's take our Bibles and look at Revelation 15. We'll read verses 1 through 8, the whole chapter here, and then we'll explain it and apply it. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory... Over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps from God, harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. And after these things I looked. And behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven last plagues, clothed in pure bright linen. having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. And then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the bowls of wrath of God on the earth. You know, the idea spills over into chapter 16, but then in chapter 16, these seven bowls, symbolic bowls in heaven are poured out by these seven angels. And this is what's happening. Then you have this horrifying judgment of God, chaos on the earth at the end of the seven-year period of time that happens after the church believers are raptured out. The seven-year tribulation or the great tribulation of the last three and a half years. In great tribulation. In other words, the Revelation, the book that we're studying right now, is explaining what's going to happen at the end of the world. And it's not going to be World War III. It's not going to be nations against each other that ends this thing. It's going to be God bringing the end in judgment. Now, you know, the theme of this is, in a sense, it's the judgment of God. And and the the judgment of God takes different forms. And it's probably good for us to understand the forms that God's judgment takes. For instance, you know, if I were... um, One of the forms that God's judgment takes is just um, the the sowing and reaping. You do things. God says you do certain things, you sow these things, and you're going to reap these things. That's good and bad, right? So judgment is often that way. I just get what I've sown all my life. You know, so if I just sow anger in my home, someday I'm going to reap because I sowed anger in my home, right? If I'm selfish and I sow seeds of selfishness in my life, someday that's going to come home to roost and my life is going to be full of the weeds of selfishness i'm going to get choked off by that one of the forms of god's judgment is god just letting you reap what you sow there's another form of god's judgment that you see and you know it's very famous to look in revelation or excuse me in romans chapter 1 and you see a form of god's judgment and you see this in america today and that is when god says if you rebel against me and if you demand your own way and if you violate my word then eventually what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn you over to yourself and I'm going to give you what you want. This is one of the most horrifying and one of the darkest judgments that any of us could ever suffer is just to be turned over to ourselves. I really believe in America today, the best way you can explain the chaos that you see in America today is simply to say, God is giving America what America has demanded. America has collectively demanded freedom from God. America has collectively demanded A godless system of government, a godless system of education, a godless system of governance. And God is stepping back and saying, okay, let me show you what this looks like when I step out. And he steps out in terms of his blessing and his favor. The only thing that's keeping it from being a horrifying chaos and even worse is the presence of millions of genuine Christians and the Holy Spirit that lives within them. But then there is a full and final, it's what theologians would call eschatological judgment. Eschatological means, eschatology means doctrine of last things. Eschatological judgment means the judgment that comes at the end. So, so this is what we're talking about now. Revelation, in, in this section in particular, verses uh, chapters 16 to 19, are describing the end judgment of God. This is the direct judgment of God. You don't see that right now so much. What you see is people reaping and sowing reaping what they sow what you see now is people being turned over to themselves nations and churches being turned over to themselves but what we're going to see in that day at the end isn't just a chaos on earth but it's god acting from heaven in justice and in righteous judgment against men who have not only rebelled against god but have persecuted his saints And always, this judgment, is. it always references in heaven the cry of the saints in heaven, the martyred tribulation saints that have overcome. That's the Nike word in the Greek, if you remember. They're the ones who, with Christ the overcomer, have overcome. And even though some of them have been martyred, they are victorious in their death, and they're in the church triumphant in heaven, and they're always doing what? They're always doing worship, and they're always singing. And somebody sometimes says, well, you know, don't tell me that I'm going to be playing a harp in heaven. How many of you ever heard that? Don't tell me I'm going to be playing a harp in heaven. I would just say, okay, I get that. If you're talking about dressing like a girl and playing a little harp, you know, and having peroxide hair, like I don't want to be a part of that either, you know. That doesn't sound, but I'm talking about, but the Bible says that this choir in heaven, in Revelation 15, they're given harps by God. I'll just give you a little tip in life. If God gives you a harp, take it. All right? Just take it. You know, figure, you, you will figure it out then. But what's going to happen is, and, and this isn't the only place in Revelation where it says they have harps. There are places where they said they have horns. There, there, are, there are places, obviously, where there's like a choir of 144,000. That's almost as exciting as getting married, isn't it? So, so, so for the major change of subjects, don't forget to come Saturday for the big wedding. You're all invited, right? And that's a big deal, right? That's a big deal. That's probably more exciting to Pastor Lounsworth than anything else he can think of right now Katie. But imagine a choir of 144,000 people, 144,000 redeemed, delivered people. Well, in Revelation 15, you've got a a chorus that, you know, and and they're they're with, with harps and like many, many harps. And they're given by God, stringed instruments and various things. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Well, yeah, it is. These seven angels with the seven last plagues that are in the bowls. And it says in verse 1 that the wrath of God is coming to its completion, or its telos, its, its fullness, its completion. It's just, so God is finishing what he said he was going to do. He's, and this is on a sea of glass and fire. This is a sense of ominous beauty and judgment together. The throne of God is over a sea that looks like glass and fire. And these have had victory. And notice what it says they've had victory over. In verse 2, they've had victory over the beast. They've had victory over his image. They've had victory over his mark. They've had victory over the number of his name. They're standing on the sea of glass. And God has given them musical instruments to play. They sing two different songs. Isn't this interesting? What are the songs they sing? They they sing the song of Moses. The song of Moses, a key player in the Old Testament and in the law. And the one who has the, the song of deliverance from their enemies like Egypt. They're singing the song of deliverance. They are finally delivered from their enemies. They are finally delivered from their foes. They are... Absolutely and eternally victorious. And they're singing the song of Moses, a song of salvation, a song of deliverance. And what other song are they singing? This is so beautiful. They're singing the song of Moses, and when they tire of that, they sing the song of the Lamb. There's a song of deliverance, there's a song of redemption. If you get it, you always want to sing about it. If you think that singing the song of redemption in heaven is boring, it's just because you don't understand redemption deeply enough. When you get fired up because you're born again and delivered from this world and you're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and you know that you're a hell-deserving sinner, deserve to go to hell and die and suffer forever. And Jesus, the righteous Lamb, comes and he delivers you and he forgives you of your sin and he gives you an eternal home. Then you will sing and worship him whenever you get in his presence. And this is what's happening here. They're just singing. And here's the song. Great, and this is like full of praise, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? You alone are holy, and all the nations will come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. This is the song that they're singing. So afterward he looks and what happens? They open up the, the 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 heavens are opened up and they see into the tabernacle or dwelling place of God. This is actually a technical reference to the Holy of Holies. So out of the holiest place of God after the song is sung. So these judgments are going to come on the earth. The first John on Patmos has a vision of the of heaven and he sees these victorious tribulation saints who are delivered and they're singing and playing amazing instruments and it's an incredible time of praise and they're singing the song of deliverance and they're singing the song of the lamb and then the vision is opened into the holy of holies and look what happens now we're in verse five out of the temple came the seven angels having seven plagues clothed with pure bright linen having their chests girded with golden bands and then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever. These four living creatures keep surfacing over and over again in the scenes of heaven and they are probably powerful angels and they're 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 assigning to these seven angels the bowls of wrath. It's coming to the end and God is going to pour out his final judgment. He's going to bring his judgment on earth during the tribulation to a completion and he keeps giving people opportunity to repent. He keeps giving people warning and opportunity to repent. But the ones who refuse to repent will feel the full measure of God's wrath. But something unusual happens in verse 8. Notice it says, The temple is filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one is able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now, if you know your Old Testament, and the readers or the listeners in the first century where John is having his probably pastors or leaders of the church read to each of these churches this vision, they would have been aware enough of the Old Testament that they would immediately have thought of a couple times in the Old Testament. They say, so so the vision is this. In heaven, they're going to open the Holy of Holies when the final judgment is poured out, and the glory of God is going to be manifested in physical presence of a cloud of glory that is going to be, that you can't see through, and they can't even go on and do what they're doing because of the thickness of this physical manifestation of glory. They would have re- been reminded of a couple times in the Old Testament. One is at the, chapter 40 of Exodus. At the end of Exodus, in chapter 40, there was, uh, the people of God were, were led by Moses through God to build a tabernacle. and they did it. And if you read through the Old Testament, you know there's just all kinds of detail of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. It's almost like amazing detail. So God doesn't make Moses think this up himself. He just says to Moses, here's what I want you to do. Get the people who are gifted to do this. It's like, have this guy make the pancakes. Have this guy make the sausage. Have this guy do the greeting. Have this guy play the organ or the guitar. No, 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 not that guy. Don't have him sing. Have this guy sing. You know that. And that's what Moses does. He just gets different men and women. All of them give. And they give until they have enough. And then everybody who's gifted plugs into their place of service. And then they build the tabernacle. And when they built the tabernacle, according to God's specifications, Moses goes around and the Bible says he blesses them. He did good. That's what you were supposed to do. And then the Bible says, and this is in Exodus chapter 40, at the very end of Exodus, it says, and then the glory of the Lord filled the house. This is exactly the thing that happened. Here's how it sounds. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. Does that sound exactly what happens in Revelation 15? So the people obey. God gives the leader the vision. The the, the, the leader just tells the people, let's all do our part. The people all do their part. The leader comes along and says, bless you for that. And then God sends his glory, manifestation of his presence. This is what happened when they built the tabernacle. When they built the temple, the, the record of it is in First Kings. It's so beautiful. It'll be great Sunday afternoon reading. But when it gets to the end, it says in First Kings eight ten, it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of God so the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of God filled the house of the Lord. This does that stir you? It, it, we should pick up from that what God wants to happen in the local church. It's like, we just look at the word of God. He's given us clear instructions about what to do. And then we all get together and we obey God. And then the leaders that are wise will come, will bless the people. That's right. You did the right thing. And then God will put his favor and manifest his presence. And we'll be able to tell God is there. It isn't just human beings doing stuff. You have a sense of the presence of God. Now you think, wait a minute. Does that mean it's going to be a cloud of, of fog you can't see through? Well, here's what's interesting. Most of the time in the Bible, maybe 95% of the time, when the Bible talks about glory, it talks about a spiritual glory. It's it's this idea. God's various virtues are so beautiful. His patience and his love and his mercy and and his goodness and his justice are such beautiful qualities. When you cluster them all together and you look at them, they are the glory of God. And the Bible says that when God, that's how we glorify God, by being like God through the power that God gives to us. And so God's glory is usually referred to spiritually as a place where people are acting like God, where God is showing up in in his character as being manifested. So you see, where God is glorified is where God's character is being manifested, but we can't do that without God doing a miracle of salvation and sanctification in us. To manifest his character requires the righteousness of Christ, And the ongoing power of the Holy Spirit, salvation and sanctification. And when people cluster together like in a family, or when they cluster together in a church, and when they manifest Christ in that way, then he is glorified in that. Fast forward to Revelation, and God is sowing to the people. Look, this is God's favor here. So in other words, here's what we need to understand. Why are those people singing in Revelation 15? Well, they're singing the song of Moses, so they're singing because we were delivered. And they're singing the song of redemption, so they're singing because we were redeemed. But they're also recognizing that God is about to pour out his justice on the earth. They're singing a song of praise to God because he is so just that he is going to judge sin. They're singing because of God's justice. It's incredible. And you see this a lot in the Bible. And so let me make some applications here. I know three of them. And I think that they'll be helpful. First application is simple. So based on what we learned today, it would be good for us not to sit in judgment on God. Remember what we said before? Our our culture sits in judgment on God. They're telling God he doesn't have the right to do this. Well, Well, our culture isn't the judge, and you aren't the judge, and I'm not the judge. He's the judge. We don't judge God. He judges us, right? We don't say, God, you're too harsh. No, he's God. His justice is beautiful. It's a part of his glory. The justice of God, the judgments that come from the justice of God, even the just wrath of God is a part of the thing that makes him beautiful. It'd be like, what if you had a husband or a dad that refused to protect you in the presence of some great danger? That would not be a good dad. Michael Landon pawed on Little House on a Prairie. He would never behave in such a way, would he? No, he would be dangerous to the bad guys. He plays the violin at night and he quotes the scripture and he goes to church and he sings in church. But when the bad guys come to hurt little Laura, you know, he's going to be really dangerous. When they flirt with his wife, he's going to try to beat them up. I've seen these things. Why is it you like that character? Well, he's incredibly handsome. That doesn't hurt anything. But the reason you like that character is because there's something inside you that says it's right to have a sense of justice. And what's right? God is perfectly just, perfectly holy perfectly right and his wrath is perfectly measured and perfectly righteous and our culture doesn't know that they don't believe that so they sit in judgment of God listen when you get to revelation 15 you don't see people apologizing for God's wrath when you get to revelation 15 you don't see people trying to explain away the wrath of God When you get to Revelation 15, you have a choir with instruments like no one can really describe singing about the justice of God and singing about the beauty of God's glory and and the glory of God fills the place when he's about to pour out his judgment. So the first thing I would say in application is let's not judge God or be among those who judge God. Now the second thing I would say is this, don't, don't judge others. Don't judge others. Why? Not your job. Not your job yet. You know, it's not your job, not my job. Revelation, or sorry, Romans 14 talks about this very clearly. In in the context of a local church, it, it says don't judge your brother. You're not the final judge of your brother. This doesn't mean that we don't have, we know what's right and wrong and good and holy and just and pure. But having an attitude where we're passing judgment on others, a judgmental attitude is inappropriate because we don't need to do what only God can do. Here's what it says in Romans 14.10. It says, verse 9 says, For this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As it is written, I live, says the Lord, and every knee will bow to me, and every tongue will confess to God, so each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause of, to fall in another. Listen, the world that we're living in is really hard on people. Everybody who lives in this world gets beat up in this world. The world that we're living in is a fallen world, a sin-cursed fallen world. So nobody lives and makes it through this world without having heartaches, hardships difficulties pressures sins lust mistakes failures there are no exceptions but there should be a place where it's not a it's not a do-gooder society where people come and they're and they're given moral pep talks there should be a place where people can come when they're broken there should be a place where people can come when they're ashamed there should be a place where people can come when they're struggling there should be a place. There should be a people of God that gather to give to give out the mercy of God, when their hearts are broken and their lives are ravaged by the, by sin of their own or somebody else. And these are not judgmental people. Nobody is attracted to a group of judgmental people. Nobody's attracted to a group of people that are telling them what their heart already condemns them for. What they need to see is people who have been to the cross, and they make a place for them to kneel at the cross. People humbly kneeling in the dust at the foot of the cross, gathering and saying, kneel with us here. You'll find mercy here from God's judgment, from the guilt that you have. On Wednesday night, not too long ago, we were talking about this and the importance of it. And we were studying 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, the apostle, the great apostle who wrote this, the revelation says, my little children... I write these things to you so that you will not sin. He says, please don't sin. Then immediately afterward, he says this, but if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. So here's a picture that he's painting. There's a judge in heaven and he's not you. He's God. He's a perfect righteous judge. So when you sin against God and you confess your sin, it's like you go before the judge and you're the guilty one. And there's a voice that's crying out for your for your capital punishment. He is the accuser of the brethren. He's saying she deserves the death penalty. He deserves the death penalty. Let him die. But wait, there's somebody else there. You're not alone. As a believer standing beside you is your lawyer, your advocate. His name is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's related in an interesting way to the judge. He's his only beloved son. God's only beloved son. Jesus Christ is your lawyer when you confess your sin and you go before God and the accuser calls for your death and you deserve to die. And the judge says, she deserves to die. He deserves to die. And the devil says, send her to hell. And the advocate says, I lived a perfect life that they couldn't live Put the judgment on me, and the judge puts the judgment on your advocate, your lawyer, the Son of God, Jesus, and you walk away. Not only do you not have to suffer the punishment you deserve, but you are actually no longer guilty before God at all. He is the propitiation. What does that word mean? Jesus is the one who absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf. Can I just suggest that it's obvious when you read a text like this that you shouldn't be the judge? You don't judge God, and you don't need to be the judge, but you do need to judge yourself. And you need to judge two things about yourself. Am I saved? And I am in the process of sanctification. Am I saved? Am I in Christ? Is Christ my Lord? Otherwise, you do deserve to die and go to hell, and you will. And there will be judgment on you someday, and maybe soon. Am I saved? Am I born again? Have I believed in Christ? Is he my Savior? And then the second thing you want to ask is, am I in the process of becoming like him more and more every day? And 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 3 and verse 18 says, We all with, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are transformed into the same image from one level of glory to another, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That verse is teaching us that when we honor God with our, 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 the, the deepest part of our soul, admires God for who he is. Catch this now. When the deepest part of our heart admires God. You can do this through singing. You can do this through looking on nature. You can do this through looking at a child's face. You can do this through reading the scriptures. But when you admire the various, the cluster of beautiful things about God, which are called his glory, when the deepest part of you admires God for who he is, when you in the deepest part of you honor God for who he is, then it has a transforming effect on you. This is called sanctification. And you progressively sin less. You're less lustful. You're less angry. You're less selfish. You're less dishonest, right? You're less angry. Can I get an amen on that? You're less angry. You're nicer. You just need people that are getting nicer. Are you getting nicer? Are you getting less angry? Are you getting less selfish? Are you getting more pure are you, are you becoming more and more? See, here's what we want to do. We want to go to church. We want to look around at other people. and We want to look better than them. And we want to kind of pass judgment on them. And we, want, we kind of want to prayer request them. And what the world really needs is not people that are good at passing judgment on other people. You're joining the accuser of the brethren when you're on that team. What you need to be is on the side of the advocate. Like, I'm on the lawyer's team. I'm on Jesus' team. I'm here to tell people that they can be set free. I'm here to show people that I was set free. I'm here to tell people that the power of God can be in your life to change the darkest part about you. And there's going to be a time someday when all that is gone from your life and you totally live forever in bliss in the presence of God and his angels and the saints for millions and millions of years and you have compensation for any pain that you ever suffered because you lived for the Lord. That's our job to tell people that, not to condemn them. Because we don't judge him and we don't judge each other. We we judge ourselves. (laughs) And that's plenty of work, friends. Am I right? It's plenty of work. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything that I need and I shall not want. I have salvation through the righteousness of Christ. I have grown, I'm growing in holiness through the power of the Holy Spirit. And incidentally, sometimes when I need a taxi, he can send one. And when I'm sad, he can make me happy. And when I'm lonely, he'll be my friend. And when I'm guilty, he'll forgive me. And when things aren't the way I wish that they were, he will compensate with his presence in my life. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. Is the Lord your shepherd? Would you allow the Lord to be your shepherd? Let his son, Jesus, be your savior. You will never face the wrath of God. You'll never have to pay for your own sins. I heard a person say one time, person I live with is so hard on me. I just feel like I can never do anything right. Everything I do is wrong. Everything I think is wrong. The person I live with, sometimes people say that about their dad, God forbid. My dad, I can never make him happy. Sometimes I talk to men and they say that my wife, I can, I can never make her happy. I can never, my my opinion is never right. My, my driving isn't right. Everything I do is wrong. I just feel so put down all the time. And you hear this from women all the time. My husband's not on my team. He's against me. He's just always putting me down. I just feel put down. And then they hear this little voice that comes out of hell and it says, you're hopeless. You deserve to die and go to hell and and you're condemned. But then if you listen real carefully, comes out of heaven, you can hear, is it it music? Yes, it is. It's a song. The song of Moses of, of deliverance, a song of the lamb of redemption. And it's a song of God Put in the hearts of all God's people that you don't have to live up to anything because Jesus already lived up to it. And he will allow you to be perfectly pure before God and grow in personal righteousness before him. Thank the Lord. I want to ask you to stand. I'm going to do two more things before we go. We're going to sing a beautiful song. And then after we sing the song, I've asked uh, Joe Miller to come. And Joe is going to just pronounce a benediction today. Uh, of worship and praise to God. So sing with all your hearts, worship unto God like we're going to do in heaven. And then when you're done, Joe will come and he'll conclude our time together in prayer.